0: I set very specific, very specific and clear expectations of how we're going to treat one another. And so not only am I promoting an idea of, you know, these big concepts of how we're we're going to care about each other, we're going to respect one another. I don't have a problem saying we're going to love each other. And me as a leader, I'm going to love you. That's a part of who I am. If you're on this team, I'm going to want and what I define that as. I'm gonna to wanna to do what's best for you. I want what's best for your family, what's best for your life.
1: Welcome to the Tip of Scales podcast where we discuss running and growing your law firm. I'm your host, Maria Monroy, president and co-founder of LawRing. If my voice sounds different, (laughs) it's because it is. I've been at a conference recording podcasts. I had some speaking engagements and we've been in really loud environments where we have to scream to be heard. I also wanted to add that I'm going to be doing a solo episode where I focus on the local component of SEO. Just talking about Google, my business. It's now called Google Business Profile. If you guys have any questions regarding local SEO, please either shoot me a DM on Instagram, LawRank, or at tipthescales.podcast or leave a comment on our YouTube channel so that I can answer your questions during this episode that I'm gonna do for you guys. Cause I get a ton of questions asked all the time. Today I am joined by Bill Biggs. I've had a couple of people tell me that I needed to bring Bill on this podcast. And we talked about culture. Culture has become such a buzzword that it's really hard to grasp the concept of what does that even mean? He touched on the three things that really, really impact culture, and I really think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Bill Biggs.
0: Maria Monroy.
1: Finally, we got to do this. Yeah. I'm so tired. Why have we waited this long? I. You just, you wouldn't I'm do invasive.
0: this with me. I'm evasive. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm an introvert. I'm scared of people.
1: I mean, actually, when I asked you, you said yes. Yeah. You never said no.
0: Had I, is it possible I'd had a drink?
1: Maybe. Yes, probably.
0: Yeah. I think it was Arizona. Right.
1: All right. So you're known for culture. That's what you're known for. And I kind of want to talk about, I have a question for you actually before, before we get super into it. How much does culture have to do with like a management style? And could those two things be confused?
0: I think people probably wrap in the idea of management style into culture. I think that's probably relatively common. And so could there be some confusion there? Yes. From my perspective and, and, you know, culture, that whole concept, that uh, whole idea, that's the stuff that I geek out to. I'm not a lawyer. I don't take depots. I don't cross-examine. I don't build cases. Those folks, those men and women who are phenomenal lawyers, whether they be trial lawyers or pre-litigation lawyers, they are obsessing and learning and always wanting to get better at their craft and understand the nuances of what it means to be a zealous advocate. I feel the same way about culture.
1: A, how did you get started in this? And B, how did you end up in the legal space?
0: I think it was always naturally in me. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up until I was 40. These certain things that when I do of them, I, I seem to do pretty well. You know, over time you start to figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at in life, what comes naturally to you. And over time I started to realize, regardless of what role or job I was in early in life, because I did a few things. I was a coach, I was a teacher, I got into media, but I always found that the things I loved the most and that I seemed to be fruitful at, productive at when I was doing them, was helping another person get where they wanted to get in life, like help that person be more successful. And then on top of that, I also loved seeing a group of people that if I could help play some small part in them being successful individually, then putting them together on a team and seeing great success for that team that has a common vision, a shared goal, they're in alignment with one another they enjoy doing whatever it is they're doing, and they're driven to reach a goal, to beat a competitor, to get somewhere that they hadn't been before, that over time, I could tell I I loved it. Like that exhilarated me. So that could be when I was my kid's soccer coach, that could be when I was a teacher in a classroom, that could be in a business setting. There's so many places where helping someone else be successful individually and then saying if we can do that with multiple people put a group of people together for a goal and they love doing it they love being a part of that team that's deeply satisfying to me
1: but how do you teach that because i mean that sounds great but like teach a business owner to do that and that's that's very difficult right it's like asking Messi, hey teach me how to be as good as you it's like yeah right
0: there are some things, right, that that come natural to people and some things that don't. For me, understanding kind of how an individual works, how to bring out the best performance in a person, that starts with knowing them, with getting to know that individual. I think that starts with a deep sense of human dignity, of human worth, uh, the value of each individual, and For me, that's kind of the value system that I was raised with uh, about how valuable people were. And so you build on that an enjoyment of getting to know them. And so I value human beings. I enjoy getting to know them. I like meeting new people. I'm intrigued by people. I'm a people watcher. You know, I like to go out and watch what people are doing. And then I start to say, well, I want to have some kind of purpose in my life. I want to contribute to the world. I say, all right. If I'm good with people, I, I get to know them easily. If I can help them and put some purpose to these things that come natural to me, then maybe I can, you know, maybe I found my purpose. And so I went to school, got my bachelor's and master's in psychology. So some my first work professionally was in counseling psychology, working as a therapist, working with couples, working with families working with groups.
1: But how did you get to work with law firms and what is it specifically that you do for them? Because I keep hearing you're like the culture guy, you know, but what does that mean?
0: I had a mutual friend that was at the time I had started a media business working with um, professional athletes and professional sports teams, college sports teams in public relations and uh, performance enhancement for teams and getting team chemistry on a on a football team or on a college basketball team. I was doing stuff like that and loved it. I had a mutual friend who worked for a law firm. That law firm was looking for a chief operating officer, but they were a relatively small law firm, about $2.5, $3 million in revenue, 25 people. So they reached out to me through this mutual friend, and he asked, you know, hey, are you interested in talking to these guys about their law firm? And I said, "I, I know nothing about law. I mean, I really don't. And at the time, it was a new idea kind of out there. There were a few forerunners in the business or in this industry of non-lawyers who would come in and become COOs or director of operations. And there were a few firms that were trying it out with great success. And this firm was interested in trying that. We talked. We got to know each other. Our values were aligned. And what they were looking for was somebody to come in and lead the team not just practice law, but they were growing. They were hitting about that 30-person mark, which a lot of firms find at that mark, that things start to get kind of squirrely, kind of out of hand. The management, the leadership, you don't know what everybody's doing. There's, it's, it's all been kind of one department, and now you're starting to segment into different departments. That wasn't their forte. And so they said, we need somebody who's got a track record of organizational success and enjoys coaching people and coaching teams in a business context.
1: Now, what you're alluding to is like having the processes in place to scale, basically. Yep. Do you think that that impacts culture? Meaning if a firm or any business grows too quickly and they don't have those processes in place, is that going to impact the culture of the team? Absolutely, And Absolutely. why is that?
0: Well, so let's start with the premise, and, and I believe this foundationally, that whether you intend to or not, every organization, every family, every group of people is going to have a culture. And because the culture is the things that they kind of share, the things that they value, so you could wrap in, you know, the buzzword of core values in there, but that manifests in what they believe and how they treat one another and how they act in things that are acceptable, acceptable norms. Every organization starts to have those whether they realize it or not. Um, And it's driven most often by the leader, the founder, the entrepreneur, the culture starts to take on. In fact, many times I say at the end of the day, culture is a person and it's a person. What I mean by that, it it's going to default your culture of any organization by default will at least start with kind of the basic values that are being manifested by the leader.
1: And at what point? Does the leader become irrelevant? Because I worked for AT&T for a really long time, and there was definitely a culture. You didn't really think of like a person.
0: I would say there's two ways in which that leader becomes irrelevant, and one of them is really good and one of them is really bad. They may become irrelevant because they're no longer having influence, or if they're having influence and it's negative, it's destructive. That's not good. I also believe that in a very positive way, a leader who has done such an intentional and strategic job and been good at it of infusing their values into the next set of leaders under them that they're pouring into and they they pick the right people they infuse the right values they train those leaders under them on how to multiply themselves which is my favorite leadership book multipliers by Liz Wiseman the idea is it's it's a trickle down effect it's a pyramid that leader in some sense, you might say, they almost make themselves irrelevant if they've done such a great job of giving their values to that next layer, because now that layer is no longer dependent on the leader above them to reinforce the values because they've bought into them themselves. And so, in some ways, you know, the idea of working yourself out of a job, and I often tell law firm owners that I've worked with, My job is to come in and give you the law firm that you want. And in many ways, that's often defined as, can you walk away from this firm and come back six months later? And it looks like what you want it to look like values wise. It's doing the right things. And it's probably even better than when you left it. If that's true, then you've done a phenomenal job of leading. If you've made yourself irrelevant so that you could walk away and come back and it's better than when you left it.
1: What's the first step? Like, if a leader, an owner, whatever, it's like, okay, I don't really know that I've put any intention into what I want my culture to be.
0: Several years ago, when I was asked to speak at a conference called quest I had already been kind of known as the culture guy, but they asked me a really poignant question. They said, We want you to talk about culture from the stage, but we want you to talk about the practicalities of it. What is it really, and how can it be? What's the ROI? How can you make a company better, even the bottom line, financially, by improving the culture? And that wanting to do well at that presentation really made me dig in to say, first, I need to define this. Because the idea of culture to me is, I always say, look, it is one of the most overused and least understood words in the industry. It's a buzzword. Everybody says culture. And I think that's, you know kind of negative now because it gets watered down people don't take it as seriously right of core values is another one you hear it all the time it's a buzzword it's a br- right all of that's that's a, all those that, disruption is becoming like that right there's these words that we use a lot and then they get diluted yep. and they may still be wildly important but because we say them all the time they become stale and, and you know culture is maybe at the top of the list so what I set out to do was I want to define to these people who I've got you know, 42 minutes, I want to define what it is. So I went on a deep dive into sociology, into anthropology, and learning the people who study culture and its basic you know, human state with the way we understand it, how do they define it? What are they talking about? And when I got to that and started to see the parallels of how a sociologist or an anthropologist would define culture and start to apply that into business and organizations, and even more specifically into law firms, the overlap was incredible. So what
1: did you find? Yeah.
0: So what I found was it does start with the value system. Culture is what makes a group of people unique, one from another. Language, belief systems, religion, traditions, rituals, how they get married, how they you know, what? whatever it is they do, all of those things, that's a part of their culture. We're here in Miami. There's a certain culture yes. in Miami, right? And we Very can look so. at those things and identify those are what make Miami unique. That's what makes this culture of this community.
1: I mean, you know what they say, that it's the best city in Latin America, yeah. which is comical.
0: Fancy, fascinating, right? So that is really a beautiful manifestation of culture. Well, Every organization has the same thing. And to go back to your question of, you know, an entrepreneur, they've started their firm, they're at, they're at 30 people, 25 people, whatever. Should they be thinking about culture? Is, is culture already happening, right? If they don't early on, if you don't as a law firm owner or any leader, if you're not intentional about taking a step back and saying, what is culture? What do I want it to be? then how do I make that happen? Then it's, there's still going to be some culture that happens, but it's not going to be by design. And I talk about this a lot as well. There needs to be intentionality and design. So uh, now I'm going to get to the nuts and bolts of your question of what I've tried to simplify it down to. If there's a law firm owner, someone out there trying to figure out how do I build the right culture? To me, it comes down to three things and will be specific to culture in a law firm. Number 1 how strongly does everybody on your team believe in the purpose so is there a deep sense of purpose in the work that you do and that purpose is pervasive and i call it saturation of belief so in other words do you really believe in helping your clients do you really believe that if you're a plaintiff's lawyer that the deck is stacked against your client and You are the person who has the responsibility and the privilege to fight insurance companies, to fight, to get justice for your client. And not only do you as the leader believe it, but does everybody on your team understand why they're there?
1: This is fascinating. Can I tell you why? Why? So I have a mindset coach and his whole, a really big part of what he teaches is that everything that we do comes down to what we believe. So the way that we act, every single thing There's a belief behind it. And if you want to change the actions, you first have to get down to the belief. So this makes perfect intuitive sense to me.
0: That's cognitive behavioral therapy. What I believe first to focus on that, if I can change my beliefs, I'll change my actions. There's also the flip of that. Some that believe it's behavioral heavy, change your behavior and your beliefs will start to change. There's there's research that would say that some of that can, you know, it, it goes both ways. It
1: definitely goes both ways because I don't know if you've read, I think it's it was Atomic Habits that mentioned this, how the things you do become part of your personality and it can actually go the other way too. Like if you start to say, I eat healthy, you'll start to eat healthy because you've been saying that you're, yeah. you know, this healthy person. So when I was trying to cut back on drinking I would start to say, oh, I don't drink much anymore, which was not necessarily true yet. (laughs) But now it's become true that I'm
0: manifesting it totally. And by this
1: point, I really am not much of a drinker and it becomes part of your personality. So you're more likely to act in line with your personality. And that makes sense, right? Talked
0: yourself into it.
1: Totally. So I could see how it could go both ways.
0: And by the way, there's a a great book. Everybody knows Simon Sinek, you know, start with why. Well, that's the same thing as purpose. So What I believe about culture deeply is that if to simplify it into its most basic elements, if you said, I really want to have great culture, but this still is all kind of confusing to me, and it seems like I could get lost in a rabbit hole trying to understand what it all means, you boil it down to this. Everybody in your organization needs to understand their purpose and the purpose of why this organization exists. That's what I love about our, our industry is that we have a noble purpose. We're helping people who have been harmed so in my opinion it's, it's easy to grab yep, onto it's that it's very easy and yet a lot of law firms miss out on that and and they don't inspire passion and cause and purpose in their teams and even when they're bringing in people who aren't you know they maybe they're bringing in a legal assistant they're going to train somebody to become a legal assistant or an intake associate or you know someone who didn't go to law school whatever the case may be people out there especially of that age group are looking for purpose. They're looking for, I want to do something and contribute something to the world. We have a great offering for them. So the first thing is purpose. And the way I measure it is what I, as I mentioned before, what I call a saturation of belief, meaning how much do you believe in the purpose? I got 30 people in my organization. How saturated are every one of them in their understanding of purpose? And that responsibility falls on me as the leader to saturate, to constantly talk about it, to put it in front of them, to proselytize, right, to preach the gospel of purpose. All right. So that's the first one. The next one is- Wait,
1: wait, before you go to the yeah, next one, yeah. what do you do if somebody clearly, I mean, I know the answer, but I want to hear from you. What do you do when someone just doesn't drink the Kool-Aid?
0: Look, I understand there's challenges about, well, we we don't have enough people, we're overloaded, we're all of this. And so we make reasons why- we will keep people who don't have the qualities that that we may deem to be absolutely necessary. I will tell you very practically, you know, maybe you can still have a very strong organization and not everybody is as rah-rah and gung-ho about your purpose as you are. But I'll also say the more that, that level of saturation matches yours as the as the person who should be owning it the better. So I think it matters a lot. And I think if you want to be great, then why would I keep someone? And by the way, it doesn't, it's not a rude or mean or cruel conversation to have with someone, especially if you give them what we might call a soft exit. If over time you sit down and have an honest, genuine conversation with them and say, you know, you've been here for a year, you've been here however long, whatever. I just really don't sense that you believe this stuff as much as we do. And I think that's making me feel uncomfortable, and I think it's probably making you feel uncomfortable.
1: Well, it's not the right fit for them. So you're doing them a favor, in my opinion. And
0: I believe that. And I would tell you, interestingly enough, I think that is most common. Where I see that happen the most is when, again, specific to our industry, when plaintiff's firms hire defense attorneys that are just looking for a job, you know, wanting to make a little bit more money, whatever – and they think like defense attorneys. They still think about a case through the lens of what's wrong with it rather than aggressive advocating for their client. So sometimes a defense attorney can come to the plaintiff's side, and of course, they can bring the law, say, well, I I know what the other, I know the tricks of the other side. I know the way that we all do. (laughs) You're not probably not telling us anything new. Sorry. What I want to know is, Do you really believe in what we're all about? Do you believe? Are you going to be hesitant to be as aggressive as you know we want to be on a case? And sometimes it's hard for defense attorneys to have that perspective. Not all the time. There's a lot of great defense attorneys that come and are fantastic plaintiff's attorneys. But that goes to the purpose.
1: That makes perfect sense. What's number two?
0: Number two is, again, saturation of belief How strongly, how deeply does everyone on the team believe in each other?
1: Believe in each other.
0: Believe in each other. Will we go to bat for one another?
1: How do you handle, like when I worked at id there was so much drama amongst employees. Like we're pretty remote right now, even though we do have some offices, but most of the time everybody works remote. So knock on wood, we just haven't dealt with that much. But- Law firms, they're in the office every single day, at least most. So how should law firms handle that?
0: Real quick, some firms that have had challenges with their culture, um, they have actually seen improvement with a remote model where, or hybrid model or pulsing model where more people are working from home.
1: Yeah, but because, I don't know that that's a solution. Though. Uh, it's, that,
0: it's not a solution. That's
1: like saying I'm going to separate, like I'm going to, my one of my kids is going to live in one apartment and I'm going to go to, you know, it's like- I mean, unless there's another reason for that, which there isn't, why would I do that? You know? I
0: totally agree with you. But I do hear firms and there is some truth to it when they say, you know, since we've been remote or half remote or whatever, we've seen some of our culture problems subside. Well, that's probably true because the people aren't interacting. Yeah, as no, it makes perfect and, sense. But you're also not seeing your culture get stronger. So it's becoming neutral. It's becoming maybe more bland. And in my opinion, that's negative.
1: You lose that. Personal touch, where and they've done studies on why people stay at a job. You probably know this. One of them is do they have a best friend yep. at work? So that tends, I mean, that's like a, f- a known thing, right? Yep. When you're remote, you kind of you lose out on a lot of this. Like I don't with my team because I see my team at conferences, but the rest of our the other 35 employees, they're primarily remote.
0: You know, as we lay out the three things. We've already talked about the first one being purpose. Now we're talking about the second one being belief in each other. Purpose is probably the easiest one to instill because I think humans are prone to want to believe in something. We yeah. latch onto something. We, we take on and an, we want an identity. And to me, that's a f- phenomenal thing because you know we can inspire people to be on board with this purpose and this cause. So that one I actually think is pretty easy. You can go a long way if you are good at communicating it, and you're clear about what you want. The hardest one of the three is belief in each other because humans have a hard time getting along.
1: You almost have to be like a parent. I feel like the leader has to be almost like they have to instill that amongst each other.
0: 100%. For me, this becomes the most important part of building a healthy organization, a, a powerful, elite level, highly successful organization From my perspective, almost always it is a psychological and sociological endeavor.
1: So what are some things as a leader you should say to your team to make it clear that we're a team, we work together, and if you don't like that, like, bye.
0: I set very specific, very specific and clear expectations of how we're going to treat one another. And so not only am I promoting an idea of you know, these big concepts of how we're, we're going to care about each other, we're going to respect one another. I don't have a problem saying we're going to love each other. And me as a leader, I'm going to love you. That's a part of who I am. If you're on this team, I'm going to want, and what I define that as, I'm going to want to do what's best for you. I want what's best for your family, what's best for your life. So I don't have a problem saying those are concepts, right?
1: I would love to see how some lawyers react to this.
0: They have a hard time. It, I would. It, I, it's too, it's, it's soft, it's soft skills. It's a little ooey gooey for, <laughs> for, for them. But the next thing of that is, all right. And, and here's where it gets tough, but powerful, powerful is when you start to say, here's how we're going to treat one another. And here's how we're not going to treat one another. And these things, if you do these things. I, maybe there will be some coaching, maybe there will be, you know, you might get a pass, you might get one strike or something like that. But I've said many times and I hold to it and I believe it. Culture performance is just as powerful, if not more than task performance. In my belief about what makes a high performing player, a high performing team member, what do I mean by that? If you are constantly negative negative. If all you have is a negative comment, if 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 you gripe about your team members, if you gripe about the leadership, if you gripe about the policies, if you're cynical about the purpose. Yep. If you have that way about you and it's manifesting in clear and obvious ways, I want you out. I and I may give you a a chance. We're going to I want to talk to you and be open about the change I need to see. But we are going to set guidelines and rules about way, the way we behave and the way we don't. Some more of those things. And by the way, that culminates in what I call a social contract where there are, and we probably don't have time to go into it too much here, but it is basically a set of things that we as a leadership team agree on about how we're going to treat one another and how we're going to deal with conflict. This is a fascinating piece. And then how we're going to treat the team interesting and so there's a
1: and it's a, actually written it
0: a, is a written contract and then everybody in the firm signs it and i have told people over and over, i onboard i'm involved in the onboarding process for every person that i've ever hired how Oklahoma critical SPA. is onboarding oh
1: my gosh they say that what the first 90 days are like the most critical
0: the minus 14 days before the hire and then the sixty days after are the most indicative of success. Of so that's where success is determined. And what I mean by that is the interview process. What what's going on to determine is this person the right fit? Is this and what are they learning from us? We're during gonna need the an, interview?
1: another episode. I want to do an episode on an interview. <laughs> Look, I, I geek
0: out to this stuff. So because I'll talk your ear off.
1: It's just interesting to me to see some lawyers, some law firms, not everybody, but they really lack this these concepts, right? And we had a situation where we had a a team member that was in a leadership position and they did an amazing job, but anybody rolling up to this person had an idea. They were very quick to shut it down. They were very negative about it. It had to be their way or the highway. And we were like, no. High performer, but was literally the culture of that pod was just not good anymore. And the moment you remove them, it, it's like you have a different team. It's like, oh my God, like you feel the energy automatically.
0: I reference the book, Multipliers, Liz Wiseman, my favorite leadership book. Her premise there is that there are some people in leadership who are multipliers. In other words, they make everyone around them better. They inspire, they pour in values, they train, they grow, and they reproduce other people that have the right qualities. There are, and, and they bring out the best in people. The flip side of that is exactly what you just described or one element of it called a diminisher. The person that may be brilliant.
1: And but that's the problem, I think. The problem is when you say they're doing such a great job in this area, but they're ruining our culture. And I think some business owners might let it slide because they're a high performer but i don't like to sacrifice the culture and for me personally i think the culture of of our organization is not just my team but our clients
0: absolutely have you seen simon sinek's um his matrix on culture and and performance Culture perform- I call it culture performance and task performance and how people fit into what you just described is exactly what he does, and it's brilliant. If you want to do something fun, can the camera see this? We're going to make a little square here. Here's one axis. Here's another axis. Going this way, it's culture right? So if you're way high on this scale on culture, you're a great attitude. You do everything right in the front of people. So you're a 10 over here. Up here is your performance, job, task, performance, Mm. right? So I've got somebody. So I've got performance over here. What we understand is performance, task performance, and I have culture down here. So we draw our quadrants, right? Well, a D is low culture and low performance, right? A C would be up here, they're really good at their job. I don't know if you can see. Yep. They're really good at their job, but their culture is low, yep. right? Over here's A, high culture, high performance. And even in the top quadrant of the top quadrant, top right quadrant, is a plus, right? Mm-hmm. A nine and a nine. And then over here's a B, high on culture, but mediocre to low on performance. The mo- Simon Sinek is the, is, is the master of this. And what he would tell you mm-hmm. is the most dangerous person. The most dangerous quadrant is C. C.
1: Yes, because they bring everybody's performance you got it. down.
0: You got it. Because they want the glory for themselves. They're actually threatened by others. Yes, yes. They are undermining the, the, the values, the culture. But man, they're damn good at bringing in money or they're damn good at closing a case or whatever. And so most law firm owners and most leaders get so transfixed Right.
1: This is my best employee. This is
0: I can't get rid of it. like yeah. I
1: disagree a thousand right? I, I agree and I've
0: seen it over and over again that if they'll have the bravery, the courage to get rid of that person. And I, I do, you know, most people would say most of the experts on this stuff would say it's almost impossible to get a C over to an A. If they're low on culture, it's very hard to get them over. Now, I have seen I think you can have some success depending on why they're low culture but we you know we won't get into all oh, that most we of the tried. time it, right most of the time it's hard and you start to find it doesn't really work it
1: doesn't work but in my experience i've never i mean i've been managing for gosh like 18 years i my first management job i was 18 I've never ever seen it personally.
0: I always believe and and this may be a, a you know a flaw in in my leadership and management style. and By the way, those two things were different and that'd be a fun topic to talk about the difference between leadership and management. But in my style, I always want to give somebody an opportunity. So even if it's a culture problem, unless it's egregious, unless they've done something that's right. completely unacceptable. No, and
1: I think you should as a leader.
0: And, and you sit down and you say, "You know what?" I'm going to give everybody an opportunity to hear openly and clearly and kindly, but respectfully, but firmly and directly. Here is what can't happen again. This is not in alignment with who we are. And here's what I'd like to see differently. And how can I help you get there? If they can do it, then it's awesome. Uh, and, and, and in performance re- related things, a lot of times that works. In attitudes, in deeply held beliefs, in those cultured stuff, right, it's harder for them to move to that. So to circle back to point two, belief in each other, the saturation of belief in each other, it absolutely should be, and every organization, in my opinion, every organization in America should have rules about how people treat one another. And why in the world would we say, and we do to some degree, we don't allow certain egregious acts to have discriminatory acts or harassing acts, but why do we allow the level of gossip that we do? Why do we allow the level? I of- don't
1: allow it in my life. I just, I don't think it's uh, energetic. Like if you've read the four agreements, I think it's one of the most, and I love my my family, my mom's side of the family that I grew up with, and it's very much a cultural in mexico thing to gossip all the time but i can't do it and it's gotten to the point that i'm like can we please just i don't want to talk about other people
0: i'm absolutely convinced and i think there's good research out there to support this but i've also just seen it anecdotally throughout my career interpersonal problems emotional problems inability for people to get along and function well together are the single biggest Eroder, is that a, you know, um, they call that those issues cause more loss of revenue, more pain on the bottom line, more collapse of companies than bad marketing plans. All those businesses out there that have a good idea, what typically leads them to either have stunted growth or to collapse Is interpersonal problems. That's
1: crazy. They
0: can't function well together.
1: What's the third point?
0: All right. So third point is this. We've said saturation of purpose throughout the team, saturation of belief in one another. You're such a
1: teacher. I love how you (laughs) recap them.
0: The third thing is saturation of belief about the client. And some people would attach this very closely and almost say that it's the same as number one, but it's not. You can have a sense of purpose that's not necessarily about the client, and it can still be a a noble, righteous sense of purpose. But I'm talking about something that is deeply specific to the human beings that we serve.
1: And how we treat them.
0: And how we treat them. And I go farther than that because I think it ends up affecting how we treat them, how we talk about them behind the scenes, how we even train our people and ourselves. And it starts with self-training to think about the people that give us jobs. So I full well understand, just like everybody else, right, that we deal in our industry with difficult clients. There are-
1: Imagine mine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you deal with lawyers and people I like actually, me all the time.
1: I love our clients. My clients are the best though, but I picked them, I think that's why.
0: Sadly, it is rampant in my opinion, and, and I hope it's getting better. If I, if I leave one bit of legacy in, you know, my lifetime and my career and the opportunities that I get to to talk about this stuff, if I can help organizations, specifically law firms, treat one another better and treat their clients better and have a deeper respect and sense of the worth of those individuals, and therefore those individuals have better lives, they're treated better Then, than I've accomplished, you know, what I want to. We as a industry do not, in my opinion, have the level, the high view of clients that we should, because I, I, I've heard it in law firms across America where clients are not deeply respected. And look, in that context, respect doesn't always have to be earned. I'm talking about human respect, human dignity. And it also becomes a very lazy and easy out when problems are going on. We're not doing our jobs well. And then the clients get upset and then we call the clients crazy or unreasonable or demanding or whatever. But, you know, most of the time when a client of a personal injury firm is angry, nine times out of 10, it's because they're scared. They don't understand the process and nobody's taken the time to really teach them and to explain to them what's going on. They've been traumatized. Their financial future is in jeopardy. They literally don't feel good. They're in pain. But there was
1: just a shooting at a law firm. Did you read about that?
0: I ab- yes, I did. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. Right? These things, right? When people not
1: saying that that was what happened.
0: To cut to the chase, real quick, because I know we're short short on time. I outlaw the phrase "crazy clients" in any cli- in any uh, law firm that I work with. Why? Because it affects how we think about it. the clients. It's an excuse.
1: But what if sometimes it's like legitimate?
0: Ninety five percent of the oh, time, oh, I it, it, said it's not. Yeah, true. no, no,
1: no. I think you're right.
0: But the number of times that a lawyer, a paralegal team will blame a client and talk bad about the client behind the clients. But, you know, what that's doing, it's almost self-fulfilling prophecy. It's it's eroding the view of that client. And so now we're, we're, we're we've now put a filter on how we think about the client. And so it's confirmation bias. Then every time that client talks to us, then it's going to add to this negative thing. But how did it get that way? Because we didn't talk to the client. We haven't talked to the client in six months. We don't return their phone calls. We don't explain to them the process. We don't treat them well. They don't even know the name of their attorney. They think their paralegal is their attorney. We overload our attorneys and our paralegals with way too many cases, trying to play a numbers game and a volume game and all of that. And we're not giving these people who give us a living an actual high quality of service. So, yes, they get upset. What I always tell my teams is look, these people are not crazy. They're acting normally under the circumstances that we have given them. And it's our job to build that trust. Is there a small percentage? There's issues, serious yeah. issues. And, and that has to be. And
1: unrealistic you know, expectations. That, or, or and, and by the
0: way, just one more quick thing on that. I also tell my teams, look, I expect a high level of respect and care for the client. I will hold you to that. And we are not going to talk about clients negatively. Uh, it's just not going to happen. and And no crazy clients. But. I will not allow clients to abuse you. So I'm going to protect my team too. That's so that's the, that's the balance of them. I tell them high I, expectations, to deal with that. Yeah. but I'm also not going to let you get abused. So if you have a client that's abusing, you immediately send them to me. I'm the CEO. I'm the COO. But it's, it's coming directly to me. And I'll fire a client if they're mistreating or abusing one of our team members. But nine times out of 10, very rarely. Have I ever had a situation where it couldn't
1: be resolved? They just need to be heard. It's so weird because literally yesterday, a client told me the story how he had a really upset client a few years back, an Uber driver, and they ended up getting into it, like literally like screaming match. And then like they kind of calmed down and like talked it out. And the guy has referred him like a gazillion cases. It's like, it's he's been like my best client like ever. And, like, he's had a bunch of cases because he's a newer driver.
0: started with conflict.
1: It started with conflict. I also am a big believer that if there's conflict and you can resolve it, it creates some sort of a bond, I think.
0: There's a concept known as the working alliance between the counselor and the client. And much of it is based on the fact that you will go through conflict. There's going to be a time that you have to confront the client, you know, as, as a therapist how you get through those first major conflicts where you you tell them something that they don't necessarily want to hear there's some pain there's misunderstanding a skilled therapist a skilled someone who works with people to see the best in people can skillfully work through that event and create what's known as the working alliance and it will be even stronger after the conflict than it was before And why do we call it a working alliance is because there's work being done together in alliance for a common purpose and goal.
1: Well, I think I would guess, and I don't know, I didn't study study this, but there has to be like a safety element to it because it's like, then you're like, oh, I can have conflict with this person and everything's going to be okay.
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This was really fun. I feel like I learned some stuff.
0: Anytime. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. Love what you guys are doing.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much to Bill for everything he shared with us today. If you found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show.